The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn to Genesis chapter 3, if you would. We're going to start in verse 14. Tonight, uh, we are continuing today in our series. It's called uh, Our Story Begins, and we are going verse by verse through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, Though the Bible is first and foremost God's story, He has mercifully allowed us to be a part of all He is doing as He works and weaves His magnificent plan of redemption in the earth. These first 11 chapters show us how we are not all islands unto ourselves, as sometimes we tend to live, but humanity has a shared past and a shared purpose, and we will all one day stand in the same position before this holy God who created us. Uh, Last week, we studied together the first half of Genesis 3. We saw the ancient uh, serpent Satan, the tempter and accuser of God's people, convince our first parents to believe that God was withholding some good thing from them. They believed the lie that if they disobeyed God, it would be a better outcome than if they obeyed him. As we uh, read the scriptures last week, we witnessed the most tragic event in all of history. And that was humanity rejecting the loving rule of our benevolent king and instead seeking to rule themselves. This sin led to all the pain, sorrow, and darkness we now observe in the world today, and those consequences have been devastating. Today, we're going to see God's response to this rebellious betrayal, and we will hopefully have our hearts illuminated by the truth that even in God's judgment, there is mercy and there is goodness. Praise God, we're going to read Genesis 3, verse 14 Uh, to 24. That's the end of the chapter. Hopefully you're there. Here we go. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you've eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Praise God for his word. 
So we're going to start here in verse 14. Uh, in this verse, we see God's utter contempt of sin and those who cause it. We see the just anger of God as he sentences the deceiver of his children. In Matthew 18, we're told that it would be better for us to tie a millstone around our neck and be cast into the sea than to face God after we cause one of his children to stumble. In Genesis 3.1, we see the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. So for punishment and a sign to all who may be foolish enough to think sin is not a serious matter, the serpent goes from the most crafty to the most cursed of every beast. All living things deal with the effects of our world being cursed as a result of sin. However, we see this serpent marked specifically with God's vengeance. Many believe that the serpent had legs of some kind before this, but was then cursed to crawl. It's not necessarily, uh, the text doesn't tell us that for sure, but it, it does seem that him being put down on his belly is part of the curse, so it's possible uh, he walked upright. Also, some of the um, Revelation references to the ancient serpent speak of a dragon, and so you know, people put those things together. It's not really uh, a major point, just something I thought I would offer you because uh, I'm a Bible dork. So there you go. In a very uh, intentional display of his displeasure, God tells the serpent that he's going to now eat dust as he crawls. And, and this is a father's response to the serpent tempting his children to eat something that caused them great harm. And that was the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And in fact, this is what God was saying to Satan. We may not catch it, uh, but it's there. Basically, he's saying, on this day, you got my kids to taste the one thing I told them not to. And so now you are going to taste dust all the days of your life. You see, there's specific contrast in what God is laying out here uh, to the punishment fitting the crime. Uh, we should understand from this the way God deals with the serpent, we should understand uh, that God does not play with those who tempt others. Uh, that is true. Uh, I have been told that I have a certain look that gets on my face, and when this look is on my face, typically my kids will stop whatever is causing me to have the look. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are many adults that will stop their foolishness when I get this look on my face. I have not seen it. I'm not able to create it in the mirror to reproduce it, but I've been told there is this face. Uh, but I'm just a mere man. I cannot imagine the look in the eyes of our father when he said what he just said to this serpent. And I do not want to ever have him look at me that way. And I hope you don't either. Now, many would say, oh, I, I might sin. Uh, but I would never tempt anyone else to sin. When, when I sin, I'm only hurting myself. And I would say to you, dear friend, that you have believed a lie. Uh, as much as it would make sense for you to walk into a room and change the thermostat and think that's only going to affect you, it's the same degree. When, when you sin, you are affecting others. Uh, because we are connected. We are together in families and in church families and in social groups. Uh, and, and honestly, even if you were in a cave by yourself somewhere and just <clears throat> sinning because that was the way you figured out that you weren't going to affect anybody else, actually you are affecting somebody because God created you with an intent and a purpose and a design. And when you're disobeying God over there in the cave by yourself, you're not doing the very thing he created you to do, which means other people's lives that you were supposed to be intersecting for the sake of their good and the glory of God, that's not happening. 
Your sin always affects others. So don't ever let Satan convince you your sin happens in a vacuum or that it affects nobody else. And so what is the point there? God doesn't play with that. God doesn't think it's a light thing. And so we shouldn't either. Thank God there's grace and mercy. Of course, this whole thing's going to be soaked and saturated in that. But let's first at least say, because some people won't, it matters when we obey God or we disobey God. And it doesn't just matter for your own personal little corner of existence. It matters deeply and affects others. This, is why, this principle is why a, a little leaven, uh, the Bible warns us that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's what it's talking about. Uh, this is why uh, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul teaches that people who refuse to repent when lovingly and patiently confronted by the church, if, if after a long process of the church calling them into repentance, uh, they're just going to do what they want to do. That's why they then must be removed from fellowship. Our sin does not only affect us, it affects others. Our sin never just hurts us. And many times without any intentional or overt coaxing, we are tempting others with just our own disobedience. You see, what happens is Satan will come and he'll convince others uh, as they watch you sin with what looks like no consequences. Satan will come with things like, you know, hey, God must not care. Look at that. That person's getting away with it. Or they may, Satan may whisper in their ear, oh, it, it looks like it's working out for them. And so whether you're aware of it or not, your disobedience or lack of obedience to God can be affecting somebody else. It can be a stumbling block, a source of temptation for them. It can be a foothold the devil uses in their life to try to convince them that the same thing he convinced our first parents of. There's a better path than the one God has established. There's greater joy. There's something better if you'll just disobey this God who made you and loves you and has given you benevolent boundaries for your good. Uh, one strong motivation for us to put sin to death in our lives by the power of the Spirit should be love for people, knowing that our disobedience always has an influence on others, whether we perceive it or not. And again, the way God turned to the serpent and dealt with him, uh, I have enough trouble on my own <laughs> without getting in that position. Um, I don't need millstones tied around my neck or any of that other stuff. Um, and we, we just, what, what is this, what is this, what is the point of everything I just said? Well, it's definitely not to push you towards condemnation because the Bible says that doesn't exist for Christians anymore. Praise God. It's not for you to be condemned, but it's for you to take sin seriously because there is a constant counter narrative that you are being fed, that it doesn't matter. Sometimes it's from within the church. Sometimes it's from uh, people that presume to teach the Bible that want to justify their own sloppiness in the way they live. And so they'll minimize sin and make it act like it doesn't matter. I'm just, I'm just telling you, a lot of what we're going to read today is God himself reacting to our rebellion and tyranny. And, and the question is, does it look like it matters? It does. It does. He's got a solution for it. It's mercy and grace. Hallelujah. In the person of Jesus Christ. But our obedience or disobedience matters. And it doesn't just affect us, ever. What if I go around the corner and hide when I do it or don't do it, whatever the thing is? Doesn't matter. Sin brings death and destruction, and the ripples go out farther than you are ever aware of. Uh, this is also why we are told in Romans 14 to consider the weaknesses and conscience of others, even in the way we practice Christian liberties. 
Um, the big issue in that day was meat sacrificed to idols. There were certain people that had come to faith in Christ that they thought, if I eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol, I'm participating in that idol worship, and I cannot do that. My conscience will not allow me to do that. There were other Christians that said, hey, that meat's cheaper because they cut it up for the sacrifice, but then they're going to sell it now, and so they sell it at a reduced price. I like meat. The idol actually doesn't mean anything, so I'm going to eat that, right? I'm probably group B, just to let you know. I'm pro-barbecue. Um, hallelujah. I, I love all of our uh, vegan friends in here, and you guys have better self-control and discipline than me, and I look up to you. However, I would have ate the meat sacrificed to idols, but that's not the point. Here's, here's, here's what Paul teaches us in Romans 14 in light of the gospel. If one who knows it is not a sin to eat meat sacrificed to idols tempts someone who believes that it is a sin by eating it right in front of them, they are not walking in love and they will have sinned against God and against that person. Okay? Paul, uh, in Romans 14, he lumps uh, drinking of wine or alcohol in the same category. It's not a sin to drink wine, but it is a sin to be sloppy about it and have no concern for where and how and if others may be tempted by your liberty. Paul also addresses this in 1 Corinthians 8. Go take a look at that later. I'm not building this off one text. In every situation, we as God's people do not only ask what is permissible, we must also ask what is profitable. And we're not saying what's profitable for me in the moment. I'm saying what is profitable for the glory of King Jesus and the furthering of his kingdom, which should be the stated goal of every subject of his, which is hopefully we understand when we signed up for grace and mercy, we also signed up to be a subject of this good and benevolent and glorious king that rules this kingdom. Yes? Amen. Okay? So yes. We don't just ask permissibility. We ask what is also profitable and what, what is going to be uh, loving and preferential to others. And I just want to say this to you. Um, I, I don't have time, and it's not the point of this text. I'm just I'm showing you how far it goes and how much it matters to God that we care about our actions affecting others, even in matters that aren't black and white sin. There are issues told to us in the Bible that are a matter of conscience. For one person, that may be a sin because of addictive personality, whatever it is. There are certain people that shouldn't do certain things because for them it is a sin. There are other people that maybe don't have the same background, same issues, whatever it is, that, that very same thing may not be a sin. But for that person, they have to care deeply about how their actions affect the first person, okay? The Bible is absolutely clear about this principle. And I'm just going to say this, much of the church has lost her ever-loving mind when it comes to these things. And we better let the way God deals with the serpent here in Genesis 3 motivate us to a, at least a little bit more care and caution when it comes to these things. Great spot to say amen. Amen. All right, let's go to verse 15. Because if I, if I tarry there, we're, we're not going to make it. Okay? <clears throat> it says, uh, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. There, there is a double meaning in this verse. Uh, and missing it would be like shuffling through your mail and throwing away a check for a million bucks on accident. Okay? So we don't want to do that. That would be a real bummer. Let's not do that. So first, first kind of at the surface level, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, right? So uh, Satan already hated Eve coming into this deal uh, because God loves Eve, and Satan hates what God loves because Satan's ticked off that he can't be God, okay? That's pretty basic. Um, 
But God here says that both the woman and her offspring are now going to have animosity towards him. Okay, so now there's going to be this constant tension. It seems like they kind of started to maybe strike up a friendship there in Genesis, uh, beginning of Genesis 3. There was a little conversation and whatnot. God said that's not going to be the case. There's going to be enmity, animosity. These are all synonyms for each other between you and her, okay, and her seed, all of mankind. Okay, so we have this and to some degree, good kind of built-in anxiety about Satan and the forces of darkness, hopefully, unless you are just so super hardened and darkened in your heart that you open yourself up to those things, which some people do, and uh, the results of that are always cataclysmic. Um, thankfully, because of the power of God, even, even people that do that are not beyond his reach, and uh, I've seen that firsthand, so thankful for that. Uh, but the, 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 layer, the meaning but under the meaning, right, the second layer is that this, this word seed that it says here, between your seed and her seed, uh, the word seed is, is both singular and plural here, right? Like sheep. Like if there's, if there's a sheep on the hill, you see there's a sheep. If there's a lot of sheep on the hill, you see there's some sheep, right? Like the plural and the singular are the same. The same is true for this word seed here. And what we're looking at is a few sentences, just a few sentences into his response to the greatest Betrayal ever perpetrated, God the Father is already preaching hope. How do we know that? It's, it's uncommon to refer to a woman's seed. Um, this, is, this is normally the way offspring of a male is described, right? If you, if you just think about that, most of the time it's like the seed of the man, especially even, go all through the rest of the scriptures. I mean, we, we don't really talk that way anyways in 2018 American English, but even even... From a biblical perspective, you don't see the woman's seed referred to a whole lot in, in terms of offspring. So uh, that is because God is already hinting here at the demise of this serpent coming through a particular seed, right? So for, at first he's saying all of the woman's seed, all people, there's going to be this animosity between Satan and them. But also this one particular seed, this seed born of a virgin. And though Satan will strike a blow to him... He's going to crush the head of the serpent, dealing a death blow. Theologians call this, verse 15, Genesis 3, 15, a few sentences into God's reaction to the most cosmic and scandalous betrayal in all of history. They call this right here the Proto-Evangelion, or the first gospel. Friends, we need to see the beauty of this. We say all the time here that the scarlet thread of the gospel runs from Genesis to Revelation, and we see it here. This is less than a paragraph into the judgment for sin, and God is already pointing towards his merciful remedy for sin, and that remedy is Jesus. That's who he's talking about, that's who he's pointing to, and that's who the whole Bible is about. I don't know about you, but this does a lot to, to undo the picture painted of an angry God, an uncontrollable God, a God that, and I don't, I don't want to try to tame God. God is wrathful, God is vengeful. We saw that in the way he addressed Satan. But even in the midst, this is what I want to get, this is the big idea of what we are going to see today in God's reaction to this treason committed by mankind. He can, he can simultaneously, I don't think I can do this, to, to be that level of, of hurt and angry as he must have been in that moment uh, and totally justified because all he had done was perfect and then we still spit in his face. To be that level of, of angry but, but 
at the very same time be contemplating the need to sow mercy and hope into these, these, this very proclamation of judgment, right? Most of us, and this is, it's hard for us, I think, to sometimes relate to God because most of us, we're pretty much one emotion at a time. And, and, and humans are more complex than that, and, and I understand that. However, most of us, if we were dealing with this, would have been dealing with this. And then maybe when we got calmed down, we could have come back around and said, hey, but there's hope. But this is how powerful and complex and beautiful God is and how intentional he is. He's preaching the gospel three sentences into the judgment for the fall. It's amazing. Already wants you to know, yes, this is bad. Yes, sin matters. There is consequences, and here they are. But there's also hope. This is the duality with which God approaches us always, and, and he, is, he is so gracious in doing so. He never leaves us without hope. But he also doesn't sugarcoat, right? Genesis 3, 14 through 24, there's, there's no sugar in here. There's a lot of truth. It's good for us to understand Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet you des your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Uh, just one thing right off the bat, many people have observed that human women seem to suffer more in childbirth than any other creature. Um, I don't have any empirical evidence for this other than remembering watching National Geographic as a kid, and I think it was like a water buffalo standing there wherever they were. And, it, you know, it snuck up on me. I didn't know what I was watching. And all of a sudden, man, out of the backside of this water buffalo, this baby water buffalo just <laughs> out, you know. And it's like, I'm, I didn't know what to expect. So at first I was looking at the mama's face, and she's like smacking flies with her ear and chewing something and doesn't seem to even flinch when this birth happens. And so my whole point is it doesn't typically go that way for human ladies, Right? Um, and so we can see here even that uh, some of the, the, the scientific reality of the fact that what God said would come to pass has come to pass. Uh, it seems that human women do suffer more pain than almost any other creature. So, and, and, and the question then is, is, is why? And that's the other thing I want you to see as we go through this, right? This, is, this could be a difficult set of verses for somebody that has stayed far away from God because they only understand him as a, a vengeful, angry God. They don't understand, they, they're not able to see the thread of the gospel woven, and the mercy sprinkled even in the judgment. They don't see God as good or somebody that they want to approach or trust. Um, if you see God as just punishing here, and you see it as kind of arbitrary, people would, all they did was eat the fruit of a tree. Like, what's, what's the big deal? But they're, they're, I don't have time to unpack that again. We've done that in weeks past. But the point is, it is a bigger deal than that. It's, it's a bigger question than that. It's not just about eating one fruit off of a tree. It's about obeying or disobeying, trusting or distrusting this God who has in every way proven he is worthy of trust and who has in every way proven he is worthy to be obeyed without question. That's, that's what it comes down to. The, 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 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that, that fruit signified uh, the option to either obey or disobey God. And so there's, there's much more at stake. But what God's doing here in, in judgment and in uh, sentencing and giving down the specifics of the punishment uh, is he just punishing for the sake of punishing, right? That's, that's not what a good parent does, and uh, God is the best parent. And so why this? What, why childbirth? Why pain in that? What, well, potentially this is to remind us 
that sin has damaged our ability and made it much harder to do what we were created for. Many women that struggle with infertility have this sense that their very womanhood is broken. And, and first of all, I just want to say that's not true because giving birth is not the only reason God made women. We covered that extensively a few weeks ago. Uh, so you can go back and look at that. But it, it, is, it is one of the ways God designed women to reflect him, right, in bringing forth sustaining and nurturing life. And so that's one of the ways, right, we said childbirth isn't the only way, uh, only reason God created women. Uh, he created man and women, humankind, to reflect his image. That's our first job as humanity is to reflect his image. And so childbirth is one of the ways, mothering is one of the ways that women can reflect the image of God. And, and the pain of childbirth it helps to remind us that sin always ruins or perverts good things. And the pain of childbirth is a constant reminder of that. It, this process should be beautiful. This should be one of the pinnacles of God's creation, right? That new life is coming into the world, and yet we, we suffer from the, the stain and the pain of sin every single time it happens. And, and ultimately, this is not just a reminder for the ladies. I know this part of the curse is directed towards Eve, uh, and, and I would say definitely the bulk of the reminder about sin's effects affects the ladies in this situation. But I would just say maybe not only them. It should also remind husbands as well. Uh, because if a husband loves his wife as he should uh, and is able to empathize with the fact that she's hurting, that's not going to be a great time for him either. Uh, as a matter of fact, when, Lu uh, when Natalie was pregnant with Lucy... It's probably, and I'm telling you that because it's probably, this is compounded because it was our first child. And uh, it was a while ago, so probably my testosterone levels were higher. But uh, I almost went John Q on the hospital because we go in there. John Q was a movie, I think it was Denzel Washington. They wouldn't take care of his kid. And so he like locked everyone in the hospital and was like, oh, we're going to do this. So basically I almost did that because we get to the hospital. Natalie's in a ton of pain. So I'm, I'm not like, that's not a good time to mess with me if Natalie's, if Natalie's not having a good time, I'm not having a good time. Nobody's going to have a good time, okay? So she's, she's really hurt, and we go in there, and, and they do the checks and whatever. And, 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 and the nurse may have very well been right. I'm not saying anything about what they did. I'm not a doctor or a nurse, and, and I trust that they were doing the right thing. But it didn't matter in that moment because my bride was hurting, and they were saying, well, I don't know if she's far enough along or really if this, these are real contractions or whatever the deal was, so I think we're just going to send you home. And I said... <laughs> No, you're not. <laughs> we'll, we'll take a room. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> what are we going to do? Are we going to wrestle? What's going to happen? Because she's going in a room because she's pretty tough. And if she's acting like that, then I want somebody watching her and I don't care. Send me the bill. Right. So it all worked out. We got a room and then it took forever. So I ate a lot of ham and cheese sandwiches out of the little kitchen there in the birthing section of the hospital. But uh, I'm just saying that... Uh, the pain of childbirth is a constant reminder that all things beautiful have been marred by sin. You understand what I'm saying? God is teaching us even in the punishment. He's not just saying, I'm mad that you sinned, and so now this is going to hurt. It's much deeper than that. He's always got a point behind what he's doing. God never arbitrarily or for no reason does anything. His intentionality far surpasses our ability to even possibly conceive or perceive. And so this is just one possibility of all of the reasons why God specifically uh, has said the things he said in response to the tragedy of sin in Genesis 3. Okay?
the second part of the verse says, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Uh, these are fun verses. So, what is it saying? So, yet your desire will be for your husband. The, the, the language there, there's a contrast between your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Really, um, in the original language, what it's saying is that her desire will be to, basically her desire will be to rule him, but that he's going to rule over her. And so there's this, this tension that is now set up as a result of sin where the complementary way, the beautiful and complementary way that God created us to operate as male and female is corrupted by sin. And so basically he's saying now that now that sin has entered, now as a result of the curse of sin, what's going to happen is the, the beautiful way that this was supposed to work is there's now going to be this constant sense of tension. You're going to have um, women unwilling or unable to uh, fulfill their role that God has in, in, uh, set up for them, and you're going to have men abusing their role, and uh, it's, going to be a, it's going to be a constant issue that's going to go on forever. Now, part of the beauty of what Christ did is he came, and we're going to talk more about this at the end, but he redeemed us from the curse of the law. And so some, many of the effects of the curse can be, can be bludgeoned and can be softened as a result of trusting Christ and, and receiving uh, the truth of his gospel by grace, being empowered by his Holy Spirit. Then, then we begin this process of being conformed into his image. And so husbands can do better uh, at loving their wives and wives can do better at loving their husbands as a result of Jesus working in them and through them. And so it's not all hopeless as a result of this, but I'm just explaining to you what is happening. The complementary and beautiful way God created us to operate as male and female is corrupted by sin. So, what is, so that means constantly she's wanting to uh, usurp and uh, not <clears throat> be a part of the, the family structure that God established. And this is, you know, there are some that would argue out of Galatians that Husbands, suppose, husbands leading their home is a result of the curse as they look at this. That is absolutely not the case. Just flip a page if you need to, but most of you don't need to, and go to Genesis 2. God created Adam uh, to be the head of his household, to be the head of the garden, and uh, for Eve to come and help him in that mission. Okay. Now I realize where I am, I'm in America. I realize when I am. It's 2018. You might have said, this guy caught a virus and is confused. I'm not. I know that what I'm saying is highly controversial, but here's the thing. The Bible's controversial sometimes. And what I won't do is crawl under a rock when the Bible's controversial. And the Bible's only controversial because typically we're sinners and we just don't like what it says. And so that's okay. But I want to think a little bit more deeply about this for just a second rather than just move on. How, does, how did sin mess up the beautiful complementary nature of how God created the gender role of male and female? Well, most of the time, people get upset about the fact that it says he will rule over you. The fact that the Bible teaches that um, men are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of their home. They get upset about that because they, they forget to look at at the right example of leadership. That would solve the whole problem if we would do that because here's what Ephesians 5 says. It says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. If you, so if, if the 
perfect example of how a husband is supposed to lead his home is the way that Christ has led the church. Is that not what Ephesians 5 is saying? It is what it's saying. And if that's true, then we got to look at, okay, so how did, how did Jesus come and deal with, with the church? Did he come, did he dominate the church? Did he come with harsh words for the church? Did he come and just... Uh, focus on his needs a bunch and tell the church, hey, I want you to meet these needs. Did Jesus show up and, uh, in Bethlehem and, and get old enough to where he likes sandwiches and say, hey, church, go make me a sandwich, right? Was this Jesus' approach? No. What Jesus did is came, lived the entirety of his human existence, serving, loving, and giving his life for people as he lived. And then he really gave his life upon the cross. He gave everything and held nothing back in the service of those whom he loves. That's what leadership looks like. That's what spiritual leadership looks like. And the beauty of complementarian understanding of gender roles, that's, that's the key. Because if husbands were loving their wives the way Christ loved the church, if we were serving and if we were humble, what does Philippians say? That, that Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of what? A servant, all the way to death, and even death on a cross. Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served. Jesus is the example of leadership. That's what a good, spiritual, godly leader looks like. Races to the bottom. Good eaters, good leaders eat last. Good leaders pay the highest price to serve those whom they've been entrusted to them to lead. And all of the issues of complementarian language go away if a husband loves his wife the way Christ loved the church. What wife doesn't want to jump in on that mission and help him serve her well, love their family well, and serve their God well? What wife would buck against that? But the curse jacked that up. Sin jacks that up in all various ways, forms, and kinds. Sin is the problem in every marriage. And it affects both parties. (laughs) Let me just say that plainly. Are you guys tracking with what I'm saying here? Jesus is the key to understanding what spiritual headship looks like. And if husbands were looking at that more, that all of the cultural noise, it's a hot, hot, like white hot button issue, and we're here, so I'm just going to say it. Okay, there's, there's high-level leaders right now in the largest evangelical denomination in America basically losing all of their legacy over some comments they made a long time ago along the lines of uh, there was abuse in a marriage and, and the guy basically said, uh, I think you should try to work it out, okay? Here's, and here's the thing. Even the denomination is, is kind of, they realize their back's against the wall and so they're, they're trying to figure out how to kind of PR the thing. And I got great respect for that denomination. They're, they're, they're Precious brothers and sisters in Christ, and God has used them mightily and will continue to, I believe. However, I just want to say this. Physical, we, we, we need to take a position, so I'm going to take a position right now. I'm just going to do it. Physical abuse is not just a sin, it's a crime. Okay, So if a husband is, is physically abusing his wife, first of all, pray the cops get there before I do. Okay, That's your best bet. Okay, Secondly, don't ever do that. It's not okay. It's a crime. And if we find out about it, there is no, I'm, I'm not a priest in a box. I will call the cops on you. And then I will race them to your house. Do you understand what I'm talking about? This is not a joke, man. Men should never, ever touch their wives, never mishandle them, mistreat them. They should treat them as fellow heirs of grace, like Peter said. Okay? They're not to dominate them. They're not to treat them like 
anything other than a precious gift from God. Okay? You with me on that? Can you say amen to that? Okay. It's a crime and it's a sin and it won't be tolerated here. All right? However, this is where I'm going to jump in the skillet with this other brother I think is being unfairly treated to some degree. We're, if, if, if we're made privy to a situation like that, we're going to jump in. We're going to figure out how to help. We're going to make sure she has a safe place to go, a safe place to be. We're going to take care of her. If there's kids involved, we're going to take care of them too. Okay? Make sure the authorities are involved, whatever needs to happen. However, what that doesn't mean is automatically, right off the bat, we're going to start screaming the word divorce. And this is where some of you aren't going to be happy, and that's okay. Because if it's a sin and it's a crime, yes, but if the situation is that that husband, because of the consequences of sin opening his eyes, is truly repentant, pays the legal consequences, whatever that looks like, comes before the church and, is, is, and, and, and we are convinced he is truly repentant, then we are, we are going to encourage reconciliation in that situation. We are always going to encourage in every situation, as much as possible, reconciliation of a covenant marriage. Now, I realize what I just said in our current cultural context is taboo. People won't like it. And I don't know, in 18 years, I may have to stop being a pastor because I just said it, and this is going to go on the internet. I don't care. And your silence tells me you support me. Awesome. That's good. You understand what I'm saying? There's, there's a, <laughs> God cares about covenant, and we should always seek to keep covenant together. But, but that doesn't mean we're going to encourage a woman to stay in an abusive relationship. That's the big difference. If the guy is on his knees in repentance before the Lord and is declaring in a, in a real way, and that doesn't mean just because he can say the right things and cry some crocodile tears that now everyone's hands off and we're just going to put her, dump her back in there. You understand what I'm saying? We're going to watch and we're going to pay attention. There's going to be a long process of what restoration looks like, but we are going to hope for and pray for restoration and reconciliation. We believe that's the heart of the Lord. Amen. That wasn't in the notes. Let me figure out where we are. Okay. Let's go to 17 through 19. <laughs> Let's get out of there. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Uh, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Basically, what we're seeing here, the job God gave mankind to cultivate uh, and to provide, right? He's focusing very much on what you guys are going to eat. To cultivate and to provide, it's now going to be difficult instead of joyful. Before sin entered and, and, and again, I'm not going to really belabor this point because we have a whole sermon on it from Genesis 2 about work being a good gift from God. Uh, most of us, I think, tend to struggle, at least struggle with seeing work as a part of the curse. We read these verses and we're like, yeah, work's a bummer, right? Jesus redeemed me from the curse of the law, so I'm going to live on the beach, right? Because um, I'm godly. No, you're not. Um, <laughs> You're lazy, and the Bible says a lot about you, actually. So work is a good gift from God, but work has been uh, perverted, and it has been corrupted, and it is oftentimes no longer a source of joy. 
But sometimes you can catch hints that it's supposed to be, right? Have any of you ever gardened before? Have you ever like, gone out and dug in the dirt and like, just done some stuff in a garden? I know, who I'm, I know who I'm talking to, so maybe some of you have, maybe. You've probably watched someone on a show be happy about gardening, at least. But it is a real thing, like just to get out there and, and dig in the soil with your hands and plant something and watch it grow. Like Part of this original intention we had, there is a real joy and kind of an anxiety reducing uh, ability that, that that whole thing can have. But when every, you know, unfortunately, most of us can't dink around in the garden to live. That's not enough for us to live. And so you, once you kind of start thinking about, I got to provide, and the pressures that come along with that, that's when this curse over work and um, what it takes to provide. Basically, God intended for us to be beings with a purpose and to have uh, work that brought us joy and fulfillment, and it wasn't this toil-filled, begrudging process. The curse ruined the good gift of work. The curse ruined the good gift of childbirth. The curse ruined the good gift of marriage. The curse ruined the good gift of work. Sin ruins and destroys every time. That's true, Genesis 3. It's true for your life right here, right now. Okay? And uh, I've already kind of alluded to this, but the question I want us to ask is why? Is there, is there any reason other than God is angry over sin that these curses were spoken, that, that this is what was said, that this is the ramifications, the consequences laid out by the Lord. Uh, you could ask, you know, why would God make work and marriage and childbirth harder as a result of sin and, and subsequently through the curse? And I think part of the answer to that, we, we already said above, right, is so to, to kind of remind us of our original point, the original reason for which we were created, but I think also why those areas, the work, marriage, and, and childbirth is, those things are harder because of sin so that we don't settle for a shadow of what we were created for. Because I think we as humans have a real tendency to do that. We, we oftentimes think our issue is that um, we are we can't be satisfied. We, 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 there's something more and something deeper, something far greater that we need or want or desire, and that's, that's our big issue. Um, C.S. Lewis flipped that on his head, and I, I believe he's right. He said, that, no, no, that's not the problem. We're too easily satisfied is the problem. And he's got an example about making mud pies when you could be on vacation at the beach, and we just don't see it. We sit there and we play in the mud because we just don't know. We can't even imagine what that would look like, right? It's like you're willing to live in a dumpster outside of a hotel because you can't even imagine yourself in the penthouse or what that even would look like. And, and, part of our, and part of what God is doing in this curse and part of what God is doing in the results of sin, the consequences of sin, is, you know, what did he tell Adam was going to happen when he ate of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He said, you're going to die. You see, and, and some people struggle with the fact they didn't just fall over and croak right there at the moment. What they have to understand is the, the, the teaching of the Bible unfolds that God is the source of life, right? Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. That's a pretty solid word picture. That helps me understand. If I take a branch from a tree and I cut it off, the branch is in trouble. What's it start doing immediately? Dying, right? And it's, there's no way to fix that process. It's, and it's going to happen slow. It's not going to wither immediately, but it's, it's in trouble, it needs to be connected to the, the vine, which connects to the soil, which draws the nutrients and the life, right? And so this is, this is how it is. God is the source of life. And sin has here and up until now has, has broken that connection. And so the problem is, however, we are sometimes so dense 
that we are willing to live in that dead shadow and we will, we will figure out ways to just work it out and make it be okay. We could eke out an existence dead in our sins, separated from God, and think we're happy. That's how foolish we are. That's sometimes how dense we are. We are oftentimes too easily satisfied. Sin always disrupts and destroys. And we have felt its terrible effects. But sometimes what we will do is we will just settle into that. And what God does not want us to do is live separated from him and feel like that's okay. And so he will oppose you. He will bring consequences to your sin to remind you that this is not what you were created for. Because oftentimes we could just settle into an existence separated from God, eke out, grind out some 80 years, find some small moments of enjoyment along the way, and think that was it. But what God has done so graciously and mercifully in this laying out of consequences for sin in his judgment is he has put this constant burr in our saddle. You ever had a rock in your shoe? How you going to forget about that, that that's there? No, and I don't care. It could be the size of a grain of sand, but somehow a rock in your shoe, man, is like, we, we got to get this out of here because <laughs> I'm irritated, right? This, <laughs> the curse to some degree, the consequences of sin is like a rock in your shoe so that you don't just settle in to a life of separation from God because you were made for so much more than that. You were made for a far greater destiny to be connected in beautiful relationship with this God that made you. Sin disrupted and destroyed that. It does for us today. We have felt the terrible effects of sin, but not the full force, okay? Somebody jumped in front of us and has taken the brunt of the impact. Let me read this to you. It's Galatians 3.13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Here's my point. You have felt the effects of sin. And and the fact that there's consequences for sin, that's what I, I want you to get this. Think about this until you get it and you smile about it. Because if, you, if you're not smiling about it, you haven't gotten it yet. Even in God's judgment, there is mercy. Do you not? Most of us think it's either mercy or I can get mercy or I can get judgment. Not with God. In the midst of his judgment, he is still pouring forth mercy. He is still seeking for your good, even as he gives you the consequences for your betrayal. It's for your good, friend. These are some of the harshest sounding scriptures in all of the Bible, and yet God's love is is blazing, shooting through with beautiful light, just hitting you right in the eye. Sometimes we miss it, though. God's judgment and God's mercy can happen all at the same time, and they are happening. God is merciful through his judgment, and he's got a point in it. Think about that until you're happy about it. Think about that until you can praise God for it in the midst of your storm. I'm going to start over. What did I say? I'm, I'm, so I'm saying that we have felt the effects of sin, but we have not felt them fully, as, as much as we could have. Somebody jumped in front of us and has taken the hit. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Here's what I want you to see, friends. Yes, we've experienced the pain of sin, but it could have been so much worse, and it was for somebody. See, sin did bring pain to childbirth, but nobody experienced more pain than Jesus did when through his suffering, he brought many sons to glory. 
the excruciating pain of the cross and all that he endured so that our sins could be forgiven. We, we have seen the incredible pain that comes through sin into childbirth. That's not something Jesus has not experienced. The whip and the crucifixion, the very heights of pain. He, he took the worst of it. Sin brought conflict for all of us in our marriages, in our relationships. But Jesus endured great conflict to bring our salvation. All of the time he was doing ministry, he was constantly by his own people rejected, constantly insults hurled at him all the way up until the point where he was hanging and bleeding and dying. People are casting lots for his clothes, hurling curses at him, saying, come on, if you are who you say you are, come on down. We've tasted conflict, friends. We have as a result of sin, but not to the degree that Jesus has. Thorns, the earth is going to create thorns now and make it harder to farm. And yes, we have, we have understood the difficulty that comes from that, but we have not felt thorns. We have not felt the effect of thorns the way our master did. When a crown of them was woven and shoved down into his head, he has experienced that result of sin in the world firsthand. Sin brought sweat to the brow of Adam, but it also brought sweat to Jesus, but his was far greater because he sweat drops of blood. Sin brought sorrow to all of us, and Jesus it's become a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, according to Isaiah 53. Sin has brought death, and Jesus tasted death so that every single one of us may know life. The effects of sin and the curse have touched each one of us. Each of us has suffered the effects of sin of our first parents and our own sin, but none of us has come close to tasting the full effect the way Jesus did. He took preponderance, the greatest piece of the impact of sin because we couldn't have handled it. He did that as a great act of love and a great act of mercy. We see it coming through even as God hands out judgment. We see mercy, we see love, we see grace. We see it most perfectly in the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. It's his death that means we now have hope. All of us have sinned. None of us is perfect. We've all experienced the pain as a result of it. But Jesus came, just as was promised in Genesis 3. The seed of the woman came, crushed the head of the serpent, and now there is hope for every man and every woman that will put faith in the finished work of Christ. The Bible teaches that none of us is good enough Perfection is what is required to stay in the garden. Perfection is what is required to be in relationship with God because he is perfect and holy. None of us has done that, so someone else had to come. Friend, the question today is not, can you get better? Can you do less bad things? The question today is not, can you do some more good things? Can you get the ledger to balance? That's not the question. The question is, are you willing? Are you able to trust this Jesus who came and did what you could not? He lived a perfect life and then paid the price that you should have in your place for your sins. What the Bible asks of you is, will you believe that? Will you believe he came, lived, died, and rose? Will you believe the power of God unto salvation is through Christ? Will you trust this God, this good and powerful and merciful God? We pray that you will today. And if you have, we pray that you'll live in light of it. Amen. May we be a people who love God and hate sin. And may we rejoice in the fact that even in his judgment, our God is amazingly merciful for his glory and our good. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for these verses. We thank you for the truth found within them. We thank you, Lord, for the liberating freedom that comes in knowing that though we fall short over and over again of the mark of perfection, that your mercy is there waiting for us. Lord, please don't allow us to be the kind of people to treat your mercy as a reason to act like sin is a light thing. For some people, Lord, they make this calculus that the equation doesn't add up. That if you're going to be merciful, then sin doesn't matter. God, help us. May it never be that your people would live as if betraying your goodness and mercy and love is of no effect. God, help us understand that our lives are not lived in a vacuum, that what we do and what we don't do affects other people. It affects your glory in the earth. It affects the plan of redemption that you've laid out. Thank you, God, that even when we fail, you're working in the midst of that. I thank you that the Lord Jesus was born of the line of David and Bathsheba, that, God, you, you see all, and you're not surprised by anything, and you're willing to work with our frailty and our failures. But God, may none of these things cause us to be lax or to be sloppy about the way we live. God, may we seek each day. Lord, may we seek each hour to be rid of the maladies of sin, the selfishness and, the selfishness and self-centeredness that leads us into so many traps and so many snares. And oftentimes we're, we're so busy looking at how that affects us and how it, sin has caused wounds in us that we don't even notice others being wounded by it. God, help us. Help us to be a people so soaked in love for you and love for people that sin has no enticement. May our love for you and our love for others, may it cause us, Lord, to seek obedience in every situation. Lord, we believe you are merciful. We believe you are just. We believe your judgments are right. We submit to all that you have done and all that you are doing. We thank you that you chastise the children that you love, that you deal with us. Lord, we worship you. We acknowledge your sovereignty. We rest underneath the might of your hand. And we ask for help in all these things, for your glory, O oh God, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.